Amen. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. For the last four weeks prior to this Sunday, we have looked at the first eight verses of Romans chapter 6. Now, I understand that normally I, I take these passages at a little bit bigger steps, and it takes us generally about five to six weeks to get through a chapter. That's the pace that we've been on. Uh, we're, we're on lesson number 33 now, and we're in the sixth chapter. And at the pace that we had been moving at, we probably should have been concluding chapter 6 uh, today or somewhere in that vicinity, but we're not. Amen. We have uh, slowed down dramatically in the last four weeks. We've been covering a verse or two, actually two verses a day uh, for the last four Sundays, and I'm going to keep that pace again this morning. There's a reason for that. Amen. The letter is in a transition. We're switching from the subject of justification to the subject of sanctification, and and Paul has set out to answer a very important question. It's a question that deserves our full attention. It's a question that merits the amount of time and energy that we're spending here in these first few verses of chapter 6. The question is this, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, does our living in sin give God's grace a chance to work? One, one, one preacher uh, wrongly theorized that the people who sin the most are the people who are closest to God because they have the most grace of God working in their life. That is, my friend, that's a turning the theology of Paul on its head. It's getting things backwards and upside down. Amen. That's not at all the reason why he saved you. That is not at all the reason why he set you free from sin. That is not at all the reason why he shed his blood on Calvary. Amen. So in response to that question, Paul makes the argument that we are dead to sin. And if we are dead to sin, then we cannot continue to live in it any longer. Something wonderful happened in our lives when we encountered the cross of Jesus Christ, when we surrendered our whole self to him, whenever we came to him in repentance and we died out to the old man and we were buried in the waters of baptism with him in the name of Jesus Christ and he filled us uh, with his spirit. Something wonderful happened when he came to live inside of us. You're not who you used to be. You're not the man that you were before you came to Jesus. You're not the lady that you were before you encountered the cross. Everything in your life changed the day that Jesus came into your life. You've been given a brand new life. You've been given a brand new way of living. The newness of life, the scripture calls it, and you should live like it. You should act like it. It should show up in the way that you live. That's why Paul shifts the discussion now to sanctification because sanctification is about living a changed life. It's about the life that you live. You've got to live a life that reflects what has happened to you whenever you came to him at Calvary. You've got to live a life that reflects what happened to you when you repented of your sins, were baptized in his name, and he filled you with his spirit. Amen? From verses 3 to verse 14 in Romans chapter 6, Paul introduces three crucial steps to living the life of an overcomer. And I've said this now several weeks in a row, but it is germane to the topic, and I'm going to say it again. The first of those steps is to know. 
And that's what we've been discussing now for several weeks. We've been discussing there's some things that Paul said you just need to know. You need to understand these things. And, and then once you know these things, the second step, and we'll get into that next week, is reckon. You've got to know it, and you've got to reckon it to be true. You've got you've to know it, and you've got to count it as real. And then the third and final step is that you've got to yield your life then to God on the basis of what you now know and reckon to be true. So the foundation of all of that is these things you should know. And Paul spends a large amount of time there. The first uh, few, several, several verses of that passage are focused on these things that you should should know. And so that's where we spent the bulk of our time over the last several weeks, the things that you should know. Amen. Now we've learned so far that if we were baptized into Jesus Christ, then we were baptized into his death. Amen. And if we were buried with him in baptism, then we were buried with the expectation that we should rise to walk in the newness of life. If we were planted in his likeness, the scriptures use the image of a seed that was planted. When you plant a seed, you plant a seed with the expectancy that life is going to spring forth. And if we were planted with him, when we went down in the water, we were planted with him. And if we were planted with him, then we were planted with the expectancy that we would live with him. Amen. That there would be resurrection and life, that we would rise to walk in the newness of life. And so we've learned that we were crucified with Christ for a purpose, that we should no longer serve sin, that we are not the servants of sin anymore. And from there, we launched last week into the language of emancipation. Sin was a slave master. And as a slave master, it controlled us but only as long as we were alive. When we died, we died to sin, and we died to the power and authority of sin. We literally became dead to sin's authority. When we repented of our sins and we were buried with him in baptism, we literally came to that place where we died out to sin. Sin no longer has a hold on us. Sin no longer has any authority over us. It once ruled us. It once had the power over us. But when we died with Christ... In repentance, when we were buried with him in baptism, when we rose to walk in the newness of life, when he filled us with his spirit, sin lost its hold on us. It lost its control over us. It doesn't control us anymore. Amen? Now, that doesn't mean that you won't be tempted, but it does mean that you don't have to yield to sin. It does mean that sin doesn't control you anymore. The flesh will tempt you. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, these things are always going to be there. They're always going to tempt you. They're always going to plague your heart. But the key to overcoming temptation is knowing. Knowing that you are no longer under the control of sin. You've been set free. You now have a choice. Amen. That's the point of a conversation about sanctification. You must choose 
to walk after the spirit and not after the flesh. You must choose to walk in the newness of life. You, you must choose to allow God to work in your life. You must choose every single day. You've got to choose to pursue the things of righteousness instead of the things of sin, to pursue the things of the spirit instead of the things of the flesh. And we ended with the powerful truth last week that if you can die with Christ, then you can live with Christ. If you can die with him, then you can live with him. Amen. If you'll look at Romans chapter 6, Brother Randy, if you'll kick the air on. It was plenty cool in here this morning, and it's quickly getting away from us. Amen. If you'll kick the air conditioner on, I'd appreciate it very much. Romans chapter 6. I'm going to read two verses. Verse 9 and verse 10 says, Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Now I know that normally I take the verses and deal with them separately. But today I want to deal with these two verses together as a single passage. Because they're connected in such a way that it makes better sense to approach them that way. We start with one of those things that you need to know, one of those things that you simply need to understand. And it begins in the beginning of verse 9, knowing that Christ was raised from the dead and he dieth no more. Amen. Christ has risen from the dead and he will never die again. He will never die again. That's important because it distinguishes the resurrection of Jesus Christ from anyone else who was ever resurrected in Scripture. When you read the accounts of Scripture, you can find other people who were raised from the dead back to life again by the power of God. But Jesus Christ stands apart from all of them. And that they would all die again. Everyone that Jesus ever healed of any sickness would eventually die. Everyone that he ever caused to raise from the dead, to live again, would eventually succumb to the power of death again. Everyone that was ever raised from the dead would eventually die again. But Jesus Christ stands alone in the fact that he will never face death again. Only Jesus is referred to in Scripture as the firstborn from the dead. Now, others were raised from the dead before him, but no other was the firstborn from the dead. The significance of his death and his resurrection is that it was unlike any other. A man for once having once conquered death, having once overcome death, he would never suffer death again. This is because his resurrection was about more than just the restoration of physical life. 
His resurrection was about more than just the the restatement or restoration of carnal life. His resurrection was about the restoration of spiritual life. It was about the newness of life. In his resurrection, uh, a new life was born. In his resurrection, the newness of life came into being. No other person that was ever resurrected by the power of God ever experienced the newness of life before Jesus. Sure, they got their old life back, but that's exactly what they got back. They got back their old life. They never received new life because new life originated in Jesus Christ. Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. He was the firstborn of a new covenant. He was the firstborn of this new life. Now, verse 10, the reason why I say it's best to take these two verses together is because the beginning of verse 10 provides some insight into why this is. Verse 10 starts with this explanation. For in that he died, he died unto sin. Now, at the very least, that passage tells us that the death of Jesus had something to do with sin. Amen? Not that he died because he was a sinner. We know better than that. But that he died in respect to sin. He, his death had something to do with sin. He who had never committed a sin carried the sins of the whole world upon his shoulders and bore them to an old rugged cross. Uh, he died to bear the guilt. Uh, he died to bear the penalty of our sins. He died for sin. He died because of sin. And his death had an incredible impact upon the power of sin. Because his death, he died the death of an innocent man. He never sinned. There was no fault. There was no guilt. Amen. He wasn't like anybody else who ever died before him. Sin claimed the life of an innocent man. And his death then broke the power of sin. You see, his blood didn't have to atone for his own sins. His blood didn't have to make up for his own shortcomings and failures. His blood didn't have to cover any fault on his part because he was without sin. Uh, he was sinless. Uh, he, was the, he was heaven's only spotless lamb. And his blood, uh, the song said it this morning, uh, his blood uh, was precious blood. Uh, it wasn't like any other blood. Uh, amen. My Bible said in Acts 19 that God purchased the church uh, with his own blood. Uh, in Jesus Christ, uh, God robed himself in flesh. Uh, God added to himself uh, what he had never had before. Uh, he added to himself a body, flesh, and blood. Why did he do that? Because God needed blood. God's a spirit. No man has ever seen him. But he added to himself a body so that he could shed his own blood. And that blood that flowed down Calvary's tree was the blood of a sinless sacrifice. That blood that flowed down 
Calvary's tree was the precious blood of heaven's only spotless lamb and that blood had the power to wash away all sin. That blood had the power to forever break the hold and the dominion of sin upon the sinner. When he died for sins that he never committed, he died for wrongs that he wasn't guilty of. He delivered a death blow to sin. He literally paid the price that we could not pay for ourselves. He literally paid the debt that we owed, that we were unable to pay for ourselves. We owe a debt to sin. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short. We've all come short of the glory of God. Every one of us has failed. We owe a debt to sin that we cannot pay for ourselves. There is no innocent blood that we can give that will pay the debt for our sins. But he paid that price. His precious blood flowed down the cross. And he became our redeemer. He became the lamb that died for our sins. His blood, amen, he became our substitute. I'm not going to take the time this morning to get into what it means to be a kinsman redeemer because if I do, we'll never get finished with these two verses. Amen. But he, as the only viable candidate, the only way that a, a, a person who is sold into slavery under Old Testament law for debts they could not pay, the only way they could be purchased out of slavery was by a kinsman redeemer. That means they had to be their flesh and blood. They had to be related to them. I couldn't go redeem Brother Tim just because I, I know him and I'm his friend. I can only redeem Brother Tim if I am his blood. That's why God became a man. Because in Jesus Christ, he becomes my kinsman. He becomes my redeemer. And so he can pay a price that I can't pay for myself. Uh, and he shed, when he shed his blood, amen, his blood was able to cover my sin. It was able to make up the difference for me. It was able to stand in my place. And so he could become my substitute. All through the Old Testament, the lambs that were offered for sin, it was always about substitution. It was always about this lamb stands in my place. This lamb, it takes my place and my sins are conferred upon this lamb and it dies for me. The problem was those lambs were not my kinsmen. Their blood could roll my sins ahead, but their blood couldn't cover my sins. They're not my kinsmen. But Jesus Christ became my kinsman. Amen. And as my kinsman, his blood can cover my sin. As my kinsman, his blood can wash away my guilt. As my kinsman, he can do for me what I cannot do for myself. And so Paul said, you've got to know this. You've got to understand this. This is why we're set free from sin. When we die with Christ. Because the blood that he shed on an old rugged cross, that's what washes us clean. He died once, and he didn't have to die again. He's not like anybody else. What His one death was enough to wash away a multitude of sins. The blood that he shed on an old rugged cross, that's what washes us clean. That's what takes a heart that's stained with sin and washes it white as snow. 
the precious blood of Jesus. It alone has the power to break the hold of sin. That blood, it was more than just the blood of another spotless lamb. That blood was precious blood. It was atoning blood. It was blood that had the unique power to set men free from sin. And so, Paul said again, referring to the first phrase of of verse 10, for in that he died, he died unto sin once. Once. Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. He was the second man, Adam. And in regards to sin, he was both perfect and innocent. No charge of sin could ever be laid at his feet. And because of that, the death that he died on the cross was a death of atonement. He took my place. He covered my sins. And that only needed to happen once. One time is all it takes. His one death is sufficient. It is effective. One time he has to die for me, and that's all it takes to cover a lifetime of sin for me. He doesn't have to die over and over again. He doesn't have to die for each successive generation that needs his blood. He doesn't have to die for every sinner that comes again needing repentance and remission of sins. He forever settled the account with sin when he died on the cross one time. That's Paul's point. He died once. The writer of Hebrews compared the death of Jesus to the multitude of sin sacrifices that died under the old covenant. Thousands and thousands and thousands of gallons of blood were shed and it was never enough. It would never cover sin. But the one death of Jesus on the cross was more than enough. The one death was all that it took. It was all sufficient. It was infinite in its power. It was infinite in its ability to set men free. And it doesn't ever need to be repeated. Sin has no power over his blood. Sin has no power where his death is concerned. Sin sin had asserted its control over God's creation. Sin had asserted its control and authority over men and women. But in Jesus Christ, listen, God entered his own fallen creation and he became a man and he came where sin ruled and he fought sin on sin's own terms, on sin's own battleground. And in the flesh, he became a man. He was made a little lower than the angels uh, for one purpose uh, that he might suffer death uh, for every man he was tempted in all points like as we are and he remained without sin in meekness and humility he overcame the arrogance and the pride of sin in weakness he overwhelmed sin's strength and at the old rugged cross Death gave way to new life. Not just life, but new life. And when he rose from a borrowed grave, he rose with the power of victory over sin. The battle was forever over. Sin was forever defeated. 
And for the first time ever, it would be possible for men to receive from God the newness of life. New life. Verse 9 then said, Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. And we've covered that very thoroughly. Death hath no more dominion over him. Death has no hold on Jesus. Just like sin had no hold on him, death has no power to claim him. Death has no hold on him. It did once for a brief time when he took his our sins uh, upon himself uh, and allowed himself uh, to be overwhelmed by death in our place. He, he lowered himself. He humbled himself. He submitted himself to death. He allowed one time death to take him. He allowed one time for death to lay its icy fingers upon him. He did that once uh, for me and for you uh, and he surrendered that one time to death but now death has no power over him Uh, he has the keys uh, to death hell and the grave uh, and there's nothing in death uh, and there's nothing in sin uh, and there's nothing in hell and there's nothing in the grave uh, that'll ever exert any authority over him he conquered it all at the cross in his resurrection Jesus Christ won a decisive victory over sin and death. He is now living a new kind of life. One is beyond the reach of sin and death. Sin has no power over him. Death has no claim on him. This world has no authority to lay hold of him. The point here is that Jesus died once. And after that, death had no more dominion over him. Death could no longer lay a hand upon him. Likewise, when we die to sin in repentance and are buried with Jesus Christ in baptism and receive the newness of life when he fills us with the Holy Ghost, we should never go back to our sinful lifestyle. It doesn't have any hold on us anymore. It doesn't have any claim to us anymore. It doesn't have any authority over us anymore. Just like sin and death no longer have any authority over Jesus Christ uh, because of this newness of life. Because we have, when we died with him and we're buried with him, we receive new life in Jesus Christ. This new life tells us we've been set free from the hold of sin. Uh, we've been set free from the hold of this world. Amen. Death is going to come once. Uh, Amen. Then we're going to be resurrected uh, and we're going to live forevermore with him. This world doesn't have a claim on us anymore because we live in a newness of life that comes from Jesus Christ. So we should never go back. We should never return. We should never look again to that life that we left behind. Just like sin and death no longer has authority over Jesus because of the newness of life. Sin and the spiritual death that it conveys upon us should no longer have any hold on us. It doesn't lay claim to us anymore. It doesn't have any authority over us anymore. Listen to me. Death couldn't claim Jesus if it wanted to. He has defeated it. And sin can't claim you if it wants to. You're an overcomer.
you have to choose to go back to that life. You've got to choose to surrender yourself again. It has no authority over you. If you have repented of your sins, uh, you died with him. If you've been buried in the name of Jesus Christ, you are buried with him in baptism. If you are filled with the spirit of the Holy Ghost, that resurrection and life, the newness of life lives in you. And sin has no control over you. That's the point. Because Jesus literally defeated death, death can't claim him again. His resurrection wasn't just a reprieve from death. It wasn't just a a few extra days that he earned. He conquered death. Everybody else that ever came out of the icy grip of death, it was just a passage of time and they were going to go back. But not Jesus. Uh, He conquered death. He overcame death. Uh, It has no hold on him at all. Listen to me. The point of this is that his resurrection, his new life, it was permanent. It was final. When he said it is finished, he meant it is finished. Uh, It is over. It is done with. Uh, Likewise, uh, our conversion should be more than just a temporary change. It should be more than just the fervency of the moment when we pour our heart out to Jesus uh, and we repent of our sins uh, and we turn to a new life. It ought to last more than a day. It ought to last more than a week. It ought to last more than a month. Uh, It ought to be something that perpetually continues in our life. We didn't receive a a short-term acquittal from sin. We weren't just given a a few moments of peace and true joy and then we're going to go back to the bondage of sin. We were set free. Sin's hold on us was broken. And so we should never go back into that old sinful lifestyle. Sin no longer has any power. It can no longer force us to do its bidding. Now don't be mistaken and I'm not going to cover this again this morning because I covered it last week and the week before. Amen. That doesn't mean that you can't sin. That doesn't mean you've got a license to do anything you want to do and it, it doesn't count for sin. Sin doesn't control you. Sin doesn't have authority over you and you should. That's the word. That's the verb that the Bible uses. You should walk in the newness of life. That does not mean the Spirit of God is going to force you. It doesn't mean that God's going to force you to live right. It means you've been empowered to live right. You should live right. The spiritual application here is that we rise from the grave of sin with the same promise of new life that Jesus Christ has. And we should never return to that grave of sin again. We should never return to the controlling influence of sin again. We should never, ever be under sin's dominion again. We should follow after the Spirit. We should follow after the things of God. Instead of walking after the flesh, we should walk after the Spirit. Brother Dennis, I want to read a brief passage of Scripture from Colossians chapter 3. Beginning with verse 1, I'm going to read 10 verses. If you have your Bible, one turn with me, Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. I'm not going to do a lot of commentary. I'm just going to read Paul's words as he wrote them. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, 
where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence. I'll get that right. Concupiscence. I looked it up. And covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. In the time in which ye walked sometime when ye lived in them. You used to do those things. You used to walk in those things. But that's the reason why the wrath of God came on those people that do those things. Because they were disobedient. And you used to walk in them when you lived in them. But now you also have put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old man. With all of his deeds. And have put on the new man. Which is renewed in knowledge. After the image of him. That created him. If you've risen with Christ. Paul said. Seek those things which are above. Walk after the spirit. And not after the flesh. He lists some things. It's not a, it's not a conclusive list. It's not, it's not every sin in the world. But th- there's some things you shouldn't do. There's some attitudes in the flesh you shouldn't pick up. There's some stuff you should never allow come back into your life. Salvation was a spiritual experience. And, and you've been granted new life in Jesus Christ. And you are dead to sin. And your life is hid with Christ. And he's the source of that new life. And that spiritual experience is going to show up in the deeds of your flesh. It's going to show up in the way that you live. It's going to show up in the words that you say. It's going to show up in the things. Things that you do. When you did those things, Paul said, you were living under bondage. You were in bondage to sin. Sin was a slave master and it controlled you. But now you put them off and you put on a new man and you don't live that way anymore. That's the point. Amen. Verse 10, going back to Romans chapter 6. Wrap things up. Verse 10 says, For in that he died, He died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. So Paul makes the point that Jesus Christ died once as a sacrifice for sin. And from then on, the man, Jesus Christ, lives forever unto God. The point here is that We should also die unto sin once. And then, just like Jesus, we should live for God from then on. We should die unto sin once, and then we should live unto God. We shouldn't return to our old life. We we shouldn't go back to our old habits. We shouldn't go back to the stuff that once had us bound. We should live a new life that has been set free from sin. We should die unto sin once. 
And from that time forward, we should live unto God. His death, Jesus Christ's death, was designed to destroy sin, to do away with sin, to abolish its hold forever. That was God's plan, to break the hold of sin on humanity. The righteous death of Jesus Christ would make atonement for sin, and it would forever settle the sin question. So after we have died with Christ, we should then live as if we are dead to sin. We should live as if we have been set free. Now there's a notable contrast revealed in verse 10. I want to point it out real quickly. Jesus had a one-time encounter with death. But he had an ongoing, continual life that is eternally lived thereafter unto God. Likewise, we're only buried with him in baptism once because once is all it takes. We visit that watery grave of death once because one burial is sufficient. But that one experience in death should yield an ongoing, continual experience of new life. It should happen to us just like it happened to him. We should walk from now on in the newness of life. We're going to visit an altar of repentance over and over again. We're going to be filled with the Spirit multiplied times. But Jesus died and buried one time. We go to the waters of baptism, are buried with him once, and once is sufficient. That's all it takes. The whole purpose of this passage is to answer the question, should we continue in sin? And the resounding answer is no. We absolutely should not. Instead, we should walk in the newness of life. We should live not unto ourselves, but unto Jesus Christ. We should walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Let me introduce one more passage of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. And it says, And that he died, for in that he died, I'm going to wait a second. It's going to be back there. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. He died for all. That, that includes you. That includes me. He died for us. That we should, not, not that we should henceforth live unto ourselves. Not that we should take our lives then and live it after the flesh. But unto him which died for them, so that we would live for him. That's what the verse says. He died for me. Not so that I could consume my life upon myself. But so that I could live my life for him. Here's the principle. We've been a lot of verses getting here, verses 3 through 10, getting to this 
this point. The principle is this. Dying with Christ should lead to living with Christ. That's the point. Dying with Christ should lead to living with Christ. That's the point of the passage. For those who rise with Christ to walk in the newness of life, slavery to sin and self has to end. And that happens when you die with Him. And when you die with Him, you live for Him. The outcome of the cross then, the outcome of the death and burial of Jesus Christ is not that you go back to your life and live it now without guilt. The outcome of the cross is that you go back and you live a life for Him, with Him, unto Him. Would you stand with me? I'm going to summarize real quickly what we've covered in the last three or four weeks. This is it in a nutshell. When we repented, when we were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, when we received the Holy Ghost, we applied the gospel of Jesus Christ to our lives. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We died with him in repentance. We were buried with him in baptism. We rise in the newness of life when he fills us with his spirit. And Paul said, you've got to know this. You've got to understand this. It's got to get a hold of your heart. You've got to realize what this means. Because this means that you now have the power to live a life of victory over sin. This means you don't have to be bound to the flesh anymore. This means you don't have to be bound to sin anymore. You don't have to yield to temptation anymore. Yes, you're going to be tempted. Yes, your flesh is going to constantly be there. It's constantly going to try to draw you back into old attitudes and old lifestyles and all that stuff that you left behind in an altar. But you don't have to succumb to that. You don't have to go back to that. You can and you should overcome it by the power of the Spirit. Because dying with Him ought to result in living for Him. That's what it's about. Dying with Jesus should result to living a life for Jesus. It really is that simple. Paul told one church in, in one letter, he said, I would not have you perverted from the simplicity that is in Christ. It's really that simple. If you die to Him, you can live for Him. All the circumstances in your life may say you can't. All of your friends and relatives and co-workers may say you'll never change. All of your history of past failures may laugh at you and mock you and say you can't do it. But if you died with Him, you can live with Him. It's really that simple. You should then walk in the newness of life. If you're in this place this morning, you're struggling with that. If you're having a hard time in this new life, if you find your flesh asserting itself and taking control again where it should not have control, the answer lies at an altar. It lies in repentance. You need to take your flesh back to an altar and you need to remind yourself that you've put off the old man and you've put on the new man. 
that you're not the man you used to be. You need to remind yourself that the life that you left behind no longer has any authority over you. All of the deeds of the old man have been put under the blood of Jesus and you are a new man in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul said you've got to mortify the deeds of the flesh. You've got to kill them. You've got to crucify them. You've got to bring them in an altar. Listen, there is no such thing as a Christian life without an altar. There's no such thing as Christianity without a cross. And there's no such thing as a Christian life without an altar. You have to have an altar. You've got to have a place where you bring yourself into the presence of God and mortify the deeds of the flesh. You have to. You have to crucify it continually. Let me invite you this morning to find a place of prayer. Sister Renee's going to sing a worship song. There is again, and there has been for five weeks in a row now, there is again a, a moving of the Holy Ghost in this house right now. God is calling us. He's calling us to embrace a new life in Him. He's calling us to embrace uh, this liberty, this spiritual liberty that He has given us, to be free from the old man and the old ways. And embrace a new life. I'm asking you to find a place of prayer for a few moments.